Well, this morning we are in week two of our series called Salt and Light. And for those of you, all right, woo, I love it. There you go, come on. There's people excited about salt and light, I guess. For those of you who weren't here last week, and for those of you maybe who were, um, this series is all about this idea of evangelism and what exactly it looks like for we, the people of God, to engage in evangelism. And when I say the word evangelism, we talked about it last week, how we have a lot of different ideas in our head of what that can look like. You, some of you, you, you got chills down your spine and, and this lump in your throat just thinking about it. But we're exploring the biblical narrative and this biblical theme of evangelism in Scripture and seeing what exactly it says to us about what evangelism is. And really, it's quite different than maybe what we had uh, initially expected and believed it to be. So um, this morning, um, we're going to the deep end, make it a little edgy. You may feel a little uncomfortable as we're talking about this, but that is to be expected because anytime you read the Word of God, it's good to feel a little, I don't know, and to, to... Kind of get a chord struck in you. That's actually what the Word of God's for. Um, And so as we jump in, I want to encourage you to continue to take notes um, because we as New Life Young Adults expect that God speaks to us. Yes, we read Scripture and we know that the objective truth is found in Scripture and we absolutely hold to that. But we also believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to each and every one of us specifically and individually based on our season of life. And so I want to encourage you to lean in this morning, listen for what God would say to you specifically because he's going to speak some good things this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's go to Matthew 5, verse 13. This is our key scripture of our series. And this is Jesus talking. He's saying, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, this definitive identity that he's speaking over us. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Say it together. Come on, say it together. Good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, here we are. We remember that we are your sons and we're your daughters. We remember that we're yours. We remember, God, that you've redeemed us and set us free. And that now we're in this life-giving relationship with you. And before we move on, before we go any further and talk about other ideas, we just rest in that, and we sit in that, and we recognize that. I think that every person in this room, for those of us who have said yes to Jesus and believe in him, Lord, we are adopted as your sons and daughters. We have a place in your family. And so regardless of what our week has looked like, whether we're we're feeling guilty because of a habitual sin that we're dealing with, whether we're carrying the weight of school and work and a dating relationship, God, regardless of a conversation we may have had this week that has left us feeling unsettled or restless, God, we we just rest in the fact that we're yours. Abba, Father, we love you. And we ask that this morning you would speak to us. God, we pray that you would speak to us in the um, specificity of our season of life and where we are. 
what our lives look like, the circumstances that we live in, we pray that you would speak to us. And would you give us eyes to hear, eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand, and that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be pleasing to you when we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Eyes to hear. Mm, That's the word of the morning. Eyes to hear. There's always a slip up some morning, and that's okay. I'm far from perfect. But uh, in the 25 years of my life, some of you may be able to relate, um, I have kind of been engaged in this season of self-discovery, right? That's kind of life. You grow up and you figure out who you are. And, and I've learned over the past 25 years a lot of things about myself. I've learned about my inner strengths and my inner weaknesses and how I'm wired and how I respond to certain situations. And, and, and probably beyond all of that, I've learned what I absolutely love and what I absolutely hate. And so, actually, I, I want to share with you a, a top three all-time hate list. Is that okay in my life? I'm going to get vulnerable. I'm going to get real. But uh, I've learned that there are three things that I absolutely hate beyond anything else, okay? So I'm going to be real. I'm going to, I'm going to open it up. Here we go. I'm, I'm sharing the depths of my soul. Um, the all-time hate list, number three, starts with LeBron James. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There's no person on this list. Some people would even argue LeBron James is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. I don't know. I've heard some people argue that. Michael Jordan, maybe. I'm going to stir the pot this morning. Told you we're going to the deep end. No. So so number three, I I hate, and and give me a shout, give me a whoop whoop if you agree with this, okay? Number three, I hate sticky hands. Can any of you relate? I hate like syrup and honey and just, ugh, like no thank you. I'd almost rather cut off my pinky than be like sticky handed, you know what I'm saying? Second worst thing I hate is wet socks. Can anybody relate to that? Just like, ugh. Especially if they're like sticky wet socks, like syrup and it's like in between your toes and ugh. No thanks. But I think you guys are going to be able to relate to this because the number one thing on my all-time hate list is awkward conversations. Can anybody relate? I I would rather have sticky hands and wet socks for the rest of my life than to engage in one awkward conversation. And a lot of the introverts in the room say, amen. Come on. Yes. There was one time in my life specifically, one moment that was really served as the epitome of an awkward conversation. And this happened a few years ago in Texas, and and JC was here, and it it was just the worst conversation I've ever been in like cringeworthy, where I look back, and it's been years, and I'm just, there's a wound in my heart, like, oh, man, why, Josh, why? And, uh, and this awkward conversation um, was with a woman who was pregnant, and, uh, and I, I, I might as well just stop right there, because you probably know where this is going, but there was this woman at church back in Texas that, that me and JC attended, and she was going on her fourth baby, right? And I, and I knew her husband, and I knew her, and, and every single time I talked to him, for some reason, you ever have these people where it's, it's just kind of awkward? And they're not awkward pe- people, and I, maybe I'm an awkward person, maybe I, you know, have this glaring blind spot in my life, and maybe I'm incredibly awkward, who knows? But, uh, but, but every time we talked, it was just this like, oh, like, why is this so weird? And so I'm always looking for material, right, as I'm talking to them. Like, let me talk about the weather. Let me talk about Peyton Manning. Let me talk about anything, coffee. Let me talk about how the grass is green. I'm just looking for random material, which, you know, kind of lends itself to more awkwardness. 
And so, so this girl was pregnant, and, uh, and every Sunday, you know, we talked to him, and going through pregnancy, I'd always ask about the baby, how are you feeling, you know, morning sick, and all that stuff. And, uh, and when, when she got to about eight months pregnant, for some reason, we kind of lost touch, and didn't really see him at church very much, probably because they were gearing up for babyhood or whatever, but uh, about, about four months went by, and, uh, and I hadn't seen him, and, you know, just... Okay, whatever. No awkward conversations. Love it. And so, so I go to church one Sunday, about four months later, and they're in the church lobby. And so I walk up to them, and, and I say, hey, guys, so good to see you. And I clip through the, the topics in my mind, right? I'm talking about the weather, going back to Peyton Manning, going back to the green grass. And then it, it hits this awkward point where I'm just, uh, I have nothing. Uh, when do you do? And she, she looks at me, and then she looks back at her husband, and then she looks at me, and her husband is like, stepping back at this point. He's like, you've unleashed the beast. The monster is in the house. What's up? And she's like, I gave birth three months ago. I have a three-month-old. I'm like, how do you recover from that, honestly? Like, I'm like, well, you don't, you don't look pregnant. I mean, you look, okay, bye. See you later. All right. I'm going to go dig myself into a hole and cry myself to sleep tonight. And it was this, like, awkward conversation. Anybody, can, can anybody relate to that, please? Like, like you, you've, you've made a stupid pregnancy comment or something. I've been there. Actually, it's happened more times than one, but I'll stop at that one. So, I, so maybe I just need to keep my mouth shut. Maybe I am an awkward person, and I just need to, like, figure this thing out. I don't know. But uh, anyway, we, we tend to, to equate evangelism sometimes with these kind of awkward conversations. I mean, for a lot of us, we may even say, I would rather call somebody pregnant who's not than have to, like, evangelize the people, right? Because it's this, like, uncomfortable thing, and we know we're supposed to do it, and we know that Scripture talks about it. We know, we know Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, but yet it's just kind of awkward, isn't it? We kind of deal with these emotions of, I know I'm supposed to, but yet, ooh. Rather tell somebody they're pregnant if they're not. You know, kind of avoid the Jesus topic because don't want to get over there. This is awkward. But yeah, you're pregnant. Yeah. And it's, it's these, these misconceptions really about evangelism that evangelism has to entail this really awkward conversation and that we have to kind of have, as we talked about last week, this cold conversation about Jesus. And uh, actually, Scripture gives us a different narrative. And scripture gives us a different context in which evangelism is done. And uh, we looked at Matthew 5, 13 through 16. We just read that. And last week we talked about how our good works are the things that point unbelievers to Jesus. And Matthew 5, 13 talks about that. That they may see your what? Your good works. And so we, we talked about how Beyond any cold conversations we have about Jesus, beyond just walking up to a stranger and saying, hey, have you heard about Jesus? The, the biblical model actually shows us more often that it's by our good works that we are to show the non-believing world about Jesus. And so um, we're going to pick up right where we left off this morning, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9. We looked at Matthew 5 last week, but we're going to look at Matthew chapter 9 this week because in Matthew 5, Jesus commands his disciples, including us, to go out and be salt and light. But that wasn't enough for Jesus. Jesus, just four chapters later, is actually seen modeling salt and light. 
seen modeling witnessing, seen modeling uh, engaging in this thing of evangelism. So we're going to read a story about Jesus, and it's, it's a little controversial, and it's a little sticky, and it's a little uh, kind of stepping on eggshells a little bit, especially to the people of the day, but, but it's good, and we see Jesus do some amazing things here. So Matthew chapter 9, we're going uh, 9 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in his house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Stop right here. Jesus at this point calls this guy Matthew, and yes, we know he's a disciple, and yes, his name's in the Bible, but before he was called to be a disciple, we see that he was a tax collector. He was sitting at a booth. He was engaging in this occupation that was absolutely detestable to any Jewish person living in the Roman Empire, because as you well know, tax collectors made their living off of swindling and stealing from people, and yet Jesus has the audacity to call that guy to be his disciple. So the edginess of this story really starts with that. Jesus goes and calls this guy who's engaged in this awful occupation that's absolutely despicable to be his disciple, to be one of his closest guys in his inner circle. And so Jesus starts following, or Matthew starts following Jesus, and apparently he throws a party. He's so excited that Jesus would call him to follow him, and he's so excited about this this whole Jesus thing and what's happening in his life, that he calls together tax collectors, two categories, tax collectors and sinners. And they all of a sudden wind up in Matthew's house reclining with Jesus. It kind of, the story shifts all of a sudden. And so we're left to assume that, okay, Matthew must have brought some people over to his house. He's throwing a party, man. He's turning down. And here Matthew in this gospel, uses this language that I find to be really interesting, and I actually love, because he makes it clear that Jesus was hanging out with two categories. We said it, tax collectors and sinners. But yet he doesn't really specify what kind of sinners, does he? He just says, tax collectors, people from his occupation, so obviously he would mention that first. But he says, and Jesus was reclining and hanging out with sinners, And I want to suggest that this is a very significant idea because he purposefully keeps this vague. Because in the parallel account of Mark chapter 2, Mark also keeps this vague. He also just says sinners. He doesn't say what kind of sinners. He just says sinners. And I want to argue that this is significant because if we're going to begin to live our lives as salt and light for Jesus, we need to stop believing and buying into the lie that there's this hierarchy of sin. That, ooh, that person's involved in that sin. Yikes. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steer clear. And even if I press in, I'm really going to have to work on you. right? I'm, you're going to have to go to church at least three dozen times before you get broken of that sin. This person, yeah, okay. It's a little sin, right? It's a sin that's like, uh, yeah. And I want to I argue that if we're effectively going to live a salt and light, we need to move beyond this belief system that one sin is worse than the other. And, and it makes anyone worse a sinner as another sin. And I want to argue this because, yes, consequentially speaking, of course, one sin is worse than the other. If you walk up and you steal a pen from Home Depot and then you sneak out the back door, okay, 
if you get caught for stealing that pen, you're, you're probably going to do 30 days in prison, maybe a year max. I mean, a year for stealing a pen, that's a long time. But, but if you walk up to somebody and strangle them to death, then you're serving 25 to life. The, the consequences of that sin are much different than the consequences of stealing a pen, okay? So consequentially speaking, yes, I concede that sins are different. But from the divine standpoint, sin really is sin, From the divine standpoint, sin separates us from God. The fact of stealing separates us from God and compromises his nature as holy just as much as murder does. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in our sin, we're separate from God. We compromise his divine and holy nature. And so, yes, consequentially, sin may be different. Really, One sin separates you from God just as much as the other. And this belief system that there's like this hierarchy of sin as far as the divine standpoint. Again, consequentially, yes. But from the divine standpoint, like it makes you any worse a sinner if you're engaging in a specific sin. Really, that's a lens that we use to judge people. And that's a lens that we use to say, again, ooh, that person is way off. Really, really off. All right, I'm going to have to work. And this person, yeah, maybe, maybe one church trip will work. It's like the power of Jesus is stunted because of a particular sin. So Matthew here doesn't specify. He says Jesus is just eating with sinners. Let's jump into verse 11, continue this narrative. And when the Pharisees saw this, the Pharisees, the the super religious, the churchgoers, the people who knew all the scripture... When they saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, that's Jesus, he said, What? Why are you talking smack? Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." And this is a controversial chapter in the life of Jesus because he's seen hanging out and engaging with sinners. And actually right here, he begins to build this reputation of himself as the guy who eats with sinners and the guy who hangs out with sinners. And if you read really any farther in the Gospels, then it becomes very clear. Jesus had this widespread reputation of hanging out with sinners. Seriously, Jesus? Well, you got your disciples Right? You're here on a mission. You're, you're supposed to engage in all this ministry. Why are you hanging out with sinners? Won't that contaminate you? Won't, won't that make you unclean? Won't that put you in a position where you're going to sin? Like, what, what's going on, Jesus? And so here Jesus clearly models this uh, practice of evangelism and living as salt and light. And this model of being salt and light, Jesus lays out for us in Matthew 9. And again, remember, he, he uh, spoke about it in Matthew 5, but he's modeling it in Matthew 9. He's showing us. He's, he's giving flesh to the words that he spoke and saying, this is how you live. And really, this idea and this model that Jesus lays out goes completely against what a lot of our widespread and modern views of Christianity are, doesn't it? Because if you really think about it, we tend to view or can view Christianity in this lens. You're in this life of sin, right? Or you're born and raised in a Christian home and all that stuff. But let's assume you're, you're living this life of sin and you don't know the Lord and you spend the first few years of your life, maybe 20 years, kind of doing your own thing. 
And then you go to a retreat or you go to a conference or you go to this night of worship or something that absolutely sets you on fire. And then you give your life to God. You believe in Jesus, you dedicate yourself to live for him, and then after that, all those people that you used to hang out with, you kind of are like, ugh, you're a sinner now, right? And we have this, this assumption that if I hang out with you, I'm, I'm going to get unclean, and if, if I get close to you and in the same circle that I once was, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall back into the deep end, so peace out. And then you get into these Christian circles, and that's great, and you, you start to hang out, and you start to gain these godly friendships, which is huge in our relationship with God. But you're kind of neglecting the people who you once hung out with, and you kind of keep them at an arm's length, the sinners, the person who you once were. And then really, if there's any sort of evangelism active whatsoever in your life, you, you kind of do it from a distance. You say, hey, yeah, you, you, you need to get to know Jesus, but I'm going to be over here. You can find me in church, right? I, I, may, I may show you, and I may have like maybe a little conversation about Jesus, maybe in passing for like five seconds, but, but if you really need me, you're going to find me in the church building. You're going to find me worshiping. You're going to find me, you know, doing the heartburn, like, oof in worship, just going after it. You're going to find me seeking God, okay? And this model really goes against what Jesus was modeling. And it's this idea that, that I like to call disassociated evangelism, something that we can practice in our lives. The idea of, oh man, I want to, I want to steer clear of you. You're a sinner. Right? I'm going to get dirty if I get close to you. And it's saying, hey, you back there, yeah, come, come to church, come meet with Jesus, but, you know, you know where to find me. I'm not going to you. But Jesus, we see in Matthew 9, models a different way for us. Because Jesus, we see, actively goes to the sinners. Not, not accidentally, not, oops, I'm in Matthew's house, chilling with some sinners. All right, man, sure, why not? But he's active, he's intentional, he makes the, the firm decision to go into the house where the party's going on, right? And he makes the decision to recline with sinners. He's getting comfortable. He's just chilling. He's like, yeah, man, let's sit. Let's talk. Let's hang out. He actively goes where the sinners are. And not only is he engaging with these sinners, and not only is he hanging out with these sinners and in the same room as sinners, but Jesus is participating in this intimate act of eating with them, are you kidding me, Jesus? You're eating? You're, you're doing this intimate practice of eating with, with sinners? I, I mean, you, you tell me. When you're sitting down and you're having a meal with someone, that's, that's pretty intimate, right? And I'm not talking just romantically intimate, but if you're sitting down with, with your boy, with your best friend, or if you're sitting down with your girl and you have a cup of coffee in your hand and, you, and you're across the table from each other, that is an intimate thing, isn't it? You're sharing life together. You're opening up parts of your soul to that person. This act of eating. And Jesus is doing this with sinners? Are you kidding me? Well, apparently, Jesus wasn't afraid of getting contaminated. Jesus wasn't afraid of hanging out with sinners and realizing, oh gosh, I kind of want to do that, and then doing that. But he's able to sit and eat and hang out with sinners and not get contaminated by him. Yeah, 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 Josh, I got that. But, but that's because Jesus was God, right? Because Jesus was fully God and fully man. Remember, remember that Jesus was fully God. So that's actually how he could sit with sinners and not eat with them. Yes, he was fully God. But what does Philippians 2 say? That he emptied himself. 
and took on the very nature of a servant. He became man. And so Jesus here and throughout his ministry is acting as a man. And that's really a good note to keep in mind anytime you read scriptures. Jesus was acting in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in his humanity, not in his deity. Because he emptied himself and took on the nature of a servant. And so here, Jesus in his manhood is hanging out with sinners. The part of him that was subject to temptation, right? The part of him that could have chosen to sin. That part of him was hanging out with sinners, and yet he wasn't afraid of being contaminated by them. Why? Because he was confident in his relationship with the Lord. He was confident in his position in the family of God. And he knew, look, I'm a son of the living God. And simply by this act of eating with sinners and hanging out with sinners, Jesus wasn't afraid of being contaminated. He didn't adopt this disassociated method of evangelism. But instead, we see him actively going and eating with sinners and engaging with sinners and and talking to sinners. And not only just talking, but he's reclining. He's comfortable. He's in his skin. He's fully himself when he's around sinners. And I want to argue, we talked a little bit about this last week, but uh, the days of disassociated evangelism are way over in America. And many of you can probably attest to that. The days of standing up on a street corner with a megaphone saying, Turn or burn! Repent! You better accept Jesus or you're going to hell. Come on. Those days are over. The days of standing outside with a sign and really not modeling anything are long gone. Because America, as we talked about last week, is oversaturated. They're busting at the seams with messages about Jesus. And with people doing that, with saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You better get Jesus or you're going to die. You're going to burn in hell. Those days are of disassociated evangelism, right? Of saying it from a distance, of saying, hey, you need to do this, but I'm going to be over here in church. Why? Because I'm afraid of being contaminated. Far be it for me to sit and have coffee with you because you're going to burn in hell if you don't accept Jesus. So Jesus, those days of disassociated evangelism in America are long gone. Instead, today, modern America needs people who are going to sit with sinners, Christ followers who aren't afraid of sitting down and saying, yo, let's chat. Let me hear what's going on in your life. And I'm sitting here and I'm not contaminated. I'm not afraid of being contaminated and I'm not afraid of falling into sin because I know my relationship with God. And it's doing life in the trenches with the sinners. America needs that. America's done with lip service, people. America's done with millennials saying, yeah, Jesus, yeah, yeah, all right, and not modeling it. And not showing good works. Not even showing good works, but doing it in the depths of life with people. And so for us, practically, if we're not to adopt a disassociated method of evangelism, what's that look like? Having coffee with people, right? Eating, maybe literally eating with them. Hanging out with them. Spending your time with them. And I'm not negating the place of godly relationships. Please don't hear me say that. Because... Obviously, scripturally, there's a place for godly relationships. There's a place where you come to church and where you hang out with people and you do life with them. And that is a huge part in our walk with the Lord. But it's not to compromise us and our presence with sinners. Because we don't need to be afraid of being contaminated by them. Jesus wasn't. In his humanity, Jesus wasn't. And so we as the people of God ought not to be. And let's go back to our scripture in uh, Matthew 5, 14 through 16. 
what do unbelievers see? And I may be beating a dead horse here, but what do unbelievers see that points them to God the Father? Is that up on the screen? Yeah, look. Look at the, the second, second to last line. That they may see your what? Good works. That they may see your what? That they may see your what? Good works. That they may see your good works. It's our good works that are pointing people to Jesus. And if good works are done in a corner, and if good works, as good as they are, and as, as much of a light as they are, the city on the hill that Jesus talks about, the light of the world, if our good works are done in a corner or in the dark, away from sinners, then what good are they? If we're only engaging in good works within a Christian context and a Christian sphere and no unbelievers are seeing, and it's not in the midst of unbelievers or sinners, what good is it? How, how then is that evangelism? Instead, we need to be the people of God who, who recognize, wait a minute, my relationship with God, we're good. Yes, I'm growing, and yes, I'm learning, and yes, I have struggles, which you need to walk in wisdom when you hang out with the unbelievers. But yes, I'm growing, but at the same time, I'm a son or I'm a daughter of God. I don't have to worry about that relationship being compromised. I don't have to worry about just the very act of having coffee or eating with a non-believer or let alone talking to a non-believer. I, I, I don't have to worry about that compromising my relationship with God. Because good work's done just in the midst of believers and not unbelievers is like doing them in the dark. People, they don't see it. They don't recognize it. They don't, they don't. It, it's not that light that's shining. And I mean in the dark, meaning like disassociated. Like, wait, wait, what's God? I, I kind of see you doing that, but I don't, you're not really around. I don't know. So as we look at our lives this morning, are you eating with sinners? Do you have people in your life, in your spheres of influence, who are non-believers? Or are you just performing good works in the dark? Are you kind of unattached? Is it kind of like, ooh, you're afraid of getting contaminated? And you're afraid that if you sit and have dinner with that person or spend a long amount of time with that person, you're going to get dirty. Do you have sinners in your life? And believe me, as a pastor, I'm speaking to myself here too, because it's incredibly hard to not surround yourself only with believers. Me and JC are trying to work on that. It's hard to be in a Christian context and to be in ministry and even to attend church and not default to only hanging out with believers, right? We can all relate to that. Let's address the elephant in the room. We can all relate to that. And some of you may be doing a great job of hanging out with unbelievers on your college campus or at work, but for the most part, there's something about modern Christianity that that just puts something in us where we're like, oh, sinners, right? And so for us, I want to challenge us. Are you eating with sinners? Am I eating with sinners? Are we, as the people of God, are we known for eating with sinners? And again, I want to say that there is a measure of wisdom here. I'm not saying to go out and do whatever the heck non-believers or sinners around you are doing. I'm not saying that. Because every single one of us have innate weaknesses that we need to be aware of. And we have deficiencies that we need to be aware of. And if you've struggled, let's say, with alcoholism or with lust in the past— then it's probably not a good idea to hang out with sinners in a club, right? Probably not. So wisdom is necessary. I'm not saying discard wisdom. What I'm saying is we as the people of God, 
Jesus modeled for us himself to be in the trenches with the sinners and to be in the broken world and not to disassociate, you know, not to at an arm's length say, hey, there's Jesus, go see Jesus, but instead being and doing life with them, rubbing shoulders with them, having coffee with them, taking walks with them across the college campus, spending time with them, eating with sinners. Because Jesus wasn't. And Jesus is our model. I have a friend who's, uh, who's actively living this right now. And if I said his name, many of you would know him. He comes to young adults. And, uh, and he's a good friend of mine. And, and he, at his own monition, says, uh, says yeah, man, I, I go to church every single week. And, you know, I go to Friday night service, and, and I get fed every week. But the rest of the week, man, his words, I'm hanging out with heathens. Like, like, I, I kind of can't believe the people I'm hanging out. I'm hanging out with people who don't give a rip about God. And he's having coffee with them, and he's having dinner with them, and he's modeling Jesus to these people because he's able to do life with these guys, and he's not afraid of being contaminated. And the fact of hanging out with the sinners, ooh, and the people who are far from God, and the people who are in this sin, and this sin, and this sin, it doesn't scare him one bit to sit down and have dinner with them. And it doesn't scare him one bit to be involved in church, and he has an amazing group of godly friendships that he surrounds himself with, but he also isn't scared of getting in the trenches a little bit, rubbing shoulders with the heathens. I I love how he says that. Like, I'm hanging out with heathens, bro. And so this morning, I told you we're going into the deep end. I told you it, it might not feel good. Jesus, the life of Jesus is controversial, and the gospel is controversial, and it's scandalous, and it doesn't make sense a lot of times. But Jesus clearly models, eat with sinners. Keep your wisdom. Keep your head on your shoulders. Recognize where you're weak, and recognize where you need to avoid. But eat with sinners, man. How are you going to show off your good works? How are you going to be Jesus apart from that relational equity with sinners? Because I'm telling you, if you walk up to a complete stranger and say, let me tell you about Jesus, okay, that might have impact from time to time. Maybe it won't, but maybe it will. That compared to you doing life with someone and you talking to them and you knowing what's going on in their life and you having a relationship with them and then talking about Jesus through the context of relationship, which one of that's going to be more impactful? Of course, the relationship, right? But how's that done? By eating with sinners, by having coffee with sinners, by doing life with sinners. And I use that again, Matthew 9. And so I want to go to one more passage of Scripture, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is you, this is me, this is our identity a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, this idea of being salt and light is rooted in the fact that we were once sinners, right? We're not to live as like, okay, great. Yeah, I'm saved. Awesome. Look ahead, look ahead, look ahead. But we're to remember, wait a minute. We were once, we were once the very sinner that we're eating with. 
We were once just as lost as that person. And again, we, we need to learn not to equate sins, you know, on, on different, different levels. But you were once lost just as much as that other person was. Even if you were born and raised in a Christian home and you didn't accept Jesus until you were four years old, for those first four years of your life, you were just as much a sinner as that person was because you had a fallen nature. And we, that being our testimony, that being uh, we are the people of God who were brought out of darkness and into his wonderful light, we've become a people of God, Peter says, so that... We weren't a people of God just so we can sit on our butts and be content with the life we have and go to church every Sunday and white knuckle and grit our teeth until Jesus comes. But we're made a people so that we may declare, proclaim, tell of who Jesus is to the dying world. Because again, we were once lost and we were once in darkness. And if we operate ever that we've earned it or that we, we did some certain things to earn the grace of God or to come into light, oh, we're so off, right? Because it is by the grace of God, the, un, the, the lavish, the, the unmerited grace of God that he bestows on us that we are the people of God. And so it's out of that history that we eat with sinners. Remembering, wait a minute, I was once you. And now I'm not this person on a pedestal, but I can actually relate to you. I, I actually have some, some commonalities and some history with you. Eat with sinners. Because once we were a people in darkness, but now our testimony is we have been brought into light and made a people of God so that we may declare and proclaim the excellencies. So I want us to close our eyes right now. I want us to focus on Jesus. And again, I want us to recognize that sometimes the weight of Scripture is just that. It's a weight. It's a burden. It's something that doesn't really feel good and something that stings and something that's uncomfortable, and maybe even something that you wrestle with and you don't agree with. I could be talking right now, and there's some of you who I have a hunch are sitting in your seat, and you're thinking, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. No, don't agree with that, don't agree with that. But I want to challenge you. Test it. Look at Scripture. Look at the narrative, this theme of evangelism in Scripture. And I want you to look at your life and honestly ask yourself, are you eating with sinners? Are there people around you? Can, can you name three people, three unsafe people around you that you're actively doing life with? If you can, great. Keep at it. Keep rubbing shoulders with them. Keep having dinner with them. Keep eating with them. But if you don't, search it out. Go for it. Perform your good works on a pedestal, not under a bushel, not under a bowl, but let your light shine. Father, we were once in darkness, and now we're living in your light. We were once lost and broken and filthy and dead in our sins. But you brought us by your amazing grace into this marvelous light. And God, we didn't earn it and we didn't work for it. And there was nothing we possibly could have done to apprehend it in our own strength. But you did it for us. Out of your grace and out of your love. And so, Jesus, we look at your sacrifice, and we look at the price that you paid, and we look at the way we should live, and we ask you for strength. God, we say that we need you. We can't do this on our own. We pray that you would make us the people of God who eat with sinners, the people of God who identify with the sinners, with the downcast, 
with the marginalized, with the people that, that Christianity and the church has written off and said, oh, they're never coming into they're, That sin is too big. That thing is too great. That habit in their life is too addictive. They're way far gone. Let us be the people who, who are Jesus to the dying world and who are Jesus to the unbelievers around us, God. Let us put on the skin of Jesus and let us engage in good works so that all the world may see that we're your disciples. God, I pray that you would speak to us as we discuss. I pray that you would make this practical and concrete. And though it may not feel good, maybe it does, but if it doesn't, Lord, we give that to you. And we ask that you would speak to us through it. And I pray that the weight of Scripture would make us different and would change our nature and would allow us to obey. And we say we love you. God, we thank you. We remember that we were once a people who were lost, but now we are in your marvelous light. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys feeling all right? A little heavy. But, uh, but you know, it's Jesus. Jesus is controversial. Jesus, like I said, is scandalous. And, uh, and we're to be Jesus. What better model, right? There's tons of models in the New Testament and throughout the Bible of evangelism, but what better model than Jesus? Because that's who we're supposed to be like, right? So, uh, so as we discuss, I want to get real. I, again, I want to I make sure we have some extended time, and you don't have to rush through these questions, but just talk through them. Talk practically. Um, figure out what these look like for you specifically. So was this helpful? Is this good? Yeah? All right, great. Good for four people. The rest of you are mad at me. All right. Enjoy discussion, guys. We'll pick this up in about 10 minutes, and then, uh, and then we'll do our benediction. All right? Much love. All right. Let's do this thing. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's read our benediction together. Our benediction is in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, the verse we just read. This is our testimony as the people of God. Let's read this together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. Father, we thank you. We love you. We're grateful for your work in our lives, and we ask that we would be the people of God this week and in the days to come that eat with sinners, that are known for engaging in good works on a, uh, on a stage in front of sinners, Lord, living life with them, rubbing shoulders with them, and talking to them about you when the time is right. We pray that you would bless us as we go. Would you bless us as we go out into the community, and would we be salt and light for you all week long, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen.